Gary sits down with Allison Leibowitz on the A-List to talk family business, what it's really like to be an entrepreneur, and why your business is also like a child. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Cause we're gonna be Well, Gary V, welcome to the A-List. Thank you so much. Now, you have a great backstory, and I feel like the people who are watching this are going to be in two camps. Either they are just stark raving mad lunatics and followers of you on every device they own, or they're saying, hmm, who is this young man? And I don't mean to say that from an older perspective, but You're I think You're absolutely that, right. Yeah, so give us some background, and I will say, I now know, we were talking, I've done so much research, yeah. uh, that diet, I don't know if you've heard of that diet, the Whole30 diet. Yes. So I've been telling my family I'm on a Whole Gary diet, <laughs> but I've been listening to you so much that our 14-year-old got in the car yesterday, and there was only like four seconds of your voice, and he goes, that Gary guy again. Vee. I got Gary V. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. So now he's on the Gary V diet. I love it. <laughs> Our is, is, the cur- is the cursing okay? Because when I'm on not television, there is some Jersey words in there. Yes, some. Yes, yes. I will yes. just say that. I'm glad you brought that up yes. because the only F word we use in PBS is funding. So. Understood. Yeah. And please fund your local PBS. <laughs> so I was born in the Soviet Union, Okay. Uh, which has had a huge impact on my life because A, it makes me disproportionately in love with America and all its opportunities and I think it's a grossly underrated, even though a lot of people watching think it's the greatest, I think it's better than we even realize. Uh, B, it means I grew up with very little. We came to the US, it was the late 70s, the uh, Jimmy Carter years, the economy collapsed and uh, we lived in a studio apartment, not bigger than this area that we're in, with six, seven, eight family members, depending on the timing. So it was very humble beginnings, but a very loving family. I have an all-time mom. I'm sure through your research, you've come to realize she's disproportionately my hero, and I give her unbelievable amounts of credit for who I am. Um, I was a super entrepreneurial kid. You know, it's very rare for somebody growing up in the 80s Uh, who's an immigrant to not be blindly bought into education is the way out. Miraculously, I have such a great mother who saw a four, five, six, I mean young, five, six, seven, eight-year-old kid basically spend all his time on business. (laughs) Lemonade. You know, I was a four-season executive. You know, in the fall, I'm raking leaves. In the winter, I'm shoveling snow and singing Christmas carols at your door. I mean, I literally, I don't talk about that a lot. I literally rang people's doors and be like, do you want us, will you pay us a dollar to sing Jingle Bells, me and my crew? I mean, it was ludicrous. And you're Jewish, right? And I'm so. Jewish. I mean, it was like, talk about, how, I'm entrepreneur first. Uh, you know, in the spring, it was like we did a, I remember we did a miniature golf course. We did flea mar- mini flea markets. It was a garage sale. In the summer, it was hardcore washing cars and lemonade. I was so passionate. And then very quickly, for a lot of people watching, they'll probably remember this, in the late 80s, early 90s, the baseball card phenomenon in America happened. And I was at the forefront. Not only was I collecting, but as a 12-year-old, I'm in, in hotels, in malls, in convention centers, set up as a dealer with other 30, 40, 50 year old men uh, and really cut my teeth there. And then my 14th birthday came and I, for whatever reason, I guess that's grown up in Russia land. My dad at this point in parallel was also an entrepreneur, a more, a more significant one, saved up all his money as a stock boy and then manager of a liquor store, which is the job he got in America and bought a liquor store and dragged me into that liquor store in Springfield, New Jersey when I was 14 and so from eighth grade on, I worked. 
And so from 14 to 18, my high school years, I fell in love with wine collecting because my dad had a liquor store, but there was, it was an affluent area of Jersey. Uh, we were in a middle class town, but everything surrounding us was stronger and people would come and they would ask for wine. And when I found out that people collected wine, that's when it clicked for me. Because I wanted to help my family business badly. I wanted to be part of the family business, but I hated liquor and beer. It wasn't interesting. I didn't want to sell Absolute Vodka or Coors Light. But it was a great intersection because you were selling lemonade as a yes. really little boy, yes. and then you got into baseball, so you knew there was a value in, some, in the thing that somebody yes. collected. Yes. So now you're going to be selling liquid. Beverages liquid, and collectibles. Yeah, right, collectibles. It's a, great, so. it's, a great, it's a great thought that I haven't thought of, so nice work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it clicked right away. I became yeah. very passionate. Went to college. And within the first couple of weeks of being in college, I saw the internet, which was September of 1994. Uh, I went into a dorm room. I saw it. It hit me. And over the next year, I became infatuated with what it could be. And in 1996, I launched one of the first e-commerce wine businesses, one of the first two or three, four uh, e-commerce wine businesses selling wine on the internet called winelibrary.com, which is the name that I, I wanted to call the business. We were called Shoppers Discount Liquors. Mm-hmm. So we, winelibrary.com was registered. In 1998, I took over my dad's, I, I joined the family business and really became the operator of the business because in my college years, during the summer especially, obviously, it was clear to my dad that I was a talented kid and I was making things happen. People were driving from two hours away to pay 35, to buy $35,000 worth of wine and I'm, 19 years old, I'm not even drinking, but I was so outrageously right about what wines were getting hot, which wines were getting big scores. If you're watching and you know wines, 90 points, 92 points, that matters a lot. Built a reputation long before the internet. And, uh, and from 1998 to 2005, in a seven year window, I built my dad's business from a business that was doing $3 million a year to a business that was doing $60 million a year. And that obviously uh, was a big deal for an immigrant family. I think it's a big deal also that your dad was so flexible and dynamic in thought because I think as an immigrant what I found is they're like the, this are, these are the rules we're going to follow here's here's the goal and let's not you know go against the grain because it might cause us to go back 10 steps my, but my, he would sounds my, accepting of my, what you're doing my dad is historically underrated hmm. for giving me the air cover I also the reason I say that is look when you you know I want to give my dad unlimited credit because he deserves it, but my dad's smart. When you have a 16-year-old son who stands behind a register but takes the initiative to go through the entire beverage journal where you order stuff from, finds a closeout of sparkling grapefruit juice, convinces the dad to buy it all, it comes, it looks like it came out of a cave, (laughs) but then figures out how to merchandise it and make signs and sell it I gave my dad a lot of reasons to give me air cover, but to your point, it takes a level of humility Mm. that most immigrant, you wanna get really scared? And this is gonna blow your mind, D-Rock. D-Rock is the man that films me all the time, so this is being filmed double. We have like so many cameras here, I don't know which way to look, so. (laughs) The day I started my dad's store permanently, 1998, Mm. uh, uh, May of 1998, my dad was 44 years old. I'm 43 as of this second. The fact to think that tomorrow my son or daughter could be coming into VaynerMedia and I'm giving them the keys to run it is just laughable. He was, not only did he give it to me, the air cover, he was a child. Hmm. That was a kid. 
you know, there's 68 year olds right now that are running the family business that are not letting their 44 year old son take over yet. There's 81 year olds watching right now where she's not letting her son or daughter take over the business and they're 60 years old. And my dad was 44 years old. And look, he did a lot of back end keeping. He, we were, he was involved, but I did all the buying, I did all the marketing, I did all the hiring, I did it. I did it. And so he deserves an enormous amount of credit and I think hundreds of millions of family businesses can learn a lot from my dad's strategy. Let's get into Vayner Media, Vayner okay. Sports, all of these things that then you started the to create. The Vayner Empire. Also the fact that uh, by the time you're 60, you're just going to be G because you keep shortening your name. <laughs> like there's, <laughs> I'm afraid right. you're going to have nothing left. Like you've taken out the Chuck Listen, and now you've taken out the Aner and now you're next, just Gary if, V. So. In, if in the next 17 years I'm able to market in a way that I can trump Google's G for my G, <laughs> I'm going to do okay. Uh, in 2009, my brother graduated college. We had decided at that point we were going to do something together. Uh, I, in 2006, started Wine Library TV, which was a daily show I put on YouTube of me tasting wine. That exploded, changed the course of my career in many ways. One, it taught me that I was a personality, I didn't know that. Two, it made my wine business explode. Three, it made me go deeper into what was called Web 2.0 that now we call social media, but these are slang terms for the current state of the internet. That led me to getting infatuated with Facebook and Twitter, which led me to investing in Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr, which as you can imagine, changed the course of my financial career. It led to me writing a book about the internet and building reputation and businesses on it called Crush It, which was a huge New York Times bestseller. Led to companies reaching out to me and saying, we're Pepsi and you have a million followers on Twitter and we have 16. That's weird, we are ready. And so one day I called my brother and said, ESPN just paid me $5,000 to come in for an hour and talk about the internet. I'm like, we should start a company around that. Uh, And I knew that I wanted to build on my strengths. I knew at 2009 that I wasn't a great liquor store operator, I was a great marketer that I could point that to anything. Hmm. And so that's the beauty of self-awareness and a little bit of experience. So we started VaynerMedia and the plan was Let's become an agency for, uh, for brands and let's build a great company and then let's really use it for ourselves because having clients at some level was not our interest. I thought at the time by 2015, 16, 17, the economy would collapse again, a cycle, because we're just coming out, just, oh wait, you know, we're, I'm like, we're building up, we'll have six, seven, eight years, you know, and then when it collapses, Hopefully the company will be good and I'll be able to have money and we'll be able to buy a business for a penny on the dollar because that's what always happens when the economy collapses. But now it's 2019, the economy has not collapsed in a decade. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's over frothy uh, and, uh, and the company's become enormous. So the idea of like building this small company and then translating all the people to the new company is out the window. Now, much like Wine Library is doing well, I want VaynerMedia to do well forever, even when I go and buy Snickers or Puma or whatever I'm up to in my next chapter, which is gonna be buying a business and running it, uh, I want Vayner to do great and I think a lot about that these days. And you wanna own the Jets? I wanna own the New York Jets. Which we have a lot in common there, I'll just say, because I grew up in Alabama, I'm a huge Alabama fan, Roll Tide, and of course love Joe Namath. 
yes. who played for the Jets. There, that's it. That's the bridge. I love it. <laughs> that's about where the bridge ends because, unlike Roll Tide, who win almost every year, we lose every year. Yeah. And so there is a big difference. And by the way, just another little connection: Richard Todd was also an Alabama quarterback who became who was supposed to be the blonde Joe Namath. He was pretty good. He was my first quarterback, but he was no Joe Namath. There you go. Um, but how, yeah. does that, how does that aspiration fuel what you do? Is it, just, is it one of those things you just keep, you've said it so long that now it's become sort of yeah. a mantra on the side? Yeah. Or is that really? Yeah. yeah. The answer is yes to both. I mean, I, in somewhere around third or fourth grade, I don't remember exactly, so I don't want to make it up, but before middle school, I started walking around grammar school saying I was going to buy the Jets. It was a very big deal in middle school and high school. It was the only thing I talked about. So that's a long time ago. Uh, and, um, but I have created more clarity over the last two or three years because I'm unbelievably passionate about happiness, not about money. As a matter of fact, I'm unbelievably not motivated by money. Mm-hmm. I've come to learn that about myself in the last half decade because I'm leaving a lot of money on the table. <laughs> I'm, I'm motivated by the process. I'm motivated by waking up in the morning and being fired up because I'm in control of my destiny and I get to do what I want. And uh, that's who I am. I'm somebody who found what, and I knew it from the beginning. You know, I didn't realize it, but now looking back, as we set up earlier, my early actions spoke to what my passion was. I always wanted to be in business. I always wanted to sell from the beginning, from the womb. And uh, I love the chase. I love the process. Which is why you're the serial entrepreneur. 100%. You gotta, keep, you gotta keep building. Real entrepreneurs, which is not what we have now. We have a generation of fake entrepreneurs because entrepreneurship is cool. And I've benefited from that. But I will not be a hypocrite or milk it. I will speak the truth. And the truth is, entrepreneurship is extremely hard. It's outrageously lonely. Almost everybody fails. And a lot of people right now that say they're entrepreneurs on Instagram are gonna not be entrepreneurs in three years when that's not the cool thing, when the economy collapses. And I'm worried about that because it leads to depression and anxiety and even the worst of worst suicide. And so, yes, that is why I am an entrepreneur. And that's why it's very easy for me to know that we're not living through an era of real entrepreneurship because so many people that I see are entrepreneurs are actually executives. Do you think a show like Shark Tank has been good for the entrepreneurial spirit or has it both sort of you're brought bar- people, yeah, yeah. Of course, has, it, bar- has it made people assume anybody can do it? The reason it's been both is what I like about Shark Tank is they show a lot of people not getting a deal. Yeah. Thank God. You know, what's bad about, you know. I saw I'm, you on Shark Tank, by the way. Oh yeah, I saw that I flashed, Matt Higgins was on. <laughs> uh, I, it's kind of, you know, I also am very passionate about garage sailing. The reason I don't like you know, like all these flipping shows and storage shows is it's just a highlight reel. Let me tell you actually what happens if you go storage auction hunting. 99 of 100 of them is a disaster and you just paid $83 for dog poopy (laughs) and then you gotta clean it out. You paid to work. Right. So what Shark Tank has at least done is shows a lot of times it's no, it's hard. It's just meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting and work and work and work. And so it's unbelievably lonely being a number one. I'm worried about what's happening in London, LA, New York right now and the well-being of 900 employees right now. I got an email on the way here that the head of HR sent something to somebody that said, you and your daughter are in our thoughts. Now I'm like, what happened? I'm worried. Like you have 900 children. Imagine having 900 children. That's what it is. 
a great operator, a great entrepreneur, a great leader, a great CEO, like that's what you do, you work for everybody else. And when you're a great entrepreneur, a CEO is a great leader in that time, but she can leave in three years and be a different CEO. This is my baby for life. This is why people struggle with work-life balance when they're entrepreneurs. Your business is the next child. I have three children. You know, and that's the truth. And maybe it's not the most politically correct thing to say right now and everybody wants more work-life balance, but a real entrepreneur will tell you dead in your face in her or his truest moment, my business is my other child. It is my family member, because it is. Well, I'll tell you what was very eye-opening for me is hearing a lot of you, a lot, hearing you speak a lot about, and not just in one context, but over and over again about your work-life balance. Yes. And specifically this idea of breadth versus depth. Yes. And that you're unapologetic about working 18 hours a day and all during the week and possibly not seeing your kids. But when you are off work, you are in family. Yep. And when you are in family, you are off work. That's right. But people are judgy about that. I mean, when people see people that on paper. People are super judgy. Right, when you I'm see it on paper, I'm judged outrageously. Like, There's a movement of people trying to make me the face of overworking. There are people right now using my name to make a point that we're glorifying hard work because they're not spending a lot of time looking at my content and realizing I'm talking about happiness. I'm talking about working hard to people who are complaining. If you're unhappy, if, and by the way, this is 90% of the conversation. Yeah. If you say to me, I'm not happy, I can't find my passion, I'm not, I don't like my job, I'm unhappy, my answer is to use work to find your way out. Yes, I think when you get home, no, you should not complain about it. You should not dwell. You should not watch Netflix or play video games to escape your unhappiness. You should try to start an internet business at night because it's practical because your grandmama didn't have this and use it over a four year period to be able to go do that and quit your job that you hate. I don't tell people to work 18 hours a day and burn out and have suicidal thoughts when they're happy. I'm talking to people that complain and dwell and that is 90% of the market. And do nothing about it. Correct, but complain and dwell. I'm an action-oriented dude. I, I just don't know any other reaction based on being an immigrant, being kind of the man of the house because my dad worked every minute. Like All I know is problem solve. The thought of problem cry is completely unacceptable to me. That is what the masses do. So we talk a lot about hard skills. What about the soft skills? What about the skills that I feel like we've lost in every generation to a little bit extent because we're not, we're not interpersonal. We're, we are relying on technology to communicate. Maybe it's exposed us, but it also has allowed us to go into our own silos and cocoons. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I think, you know, I think it depends on how you define it. So like, to me, when I think about soft skills, hmm. I think about things more like gratitude and empathy and kindness, EQ, really what I trade on, right? I would argue that technology has allowed me to scale that. You know, like why is a letter or a telephone that was rotary considered so much better than our cell phones that are on us at all times, right? The fact that, I'm looking at DRock, the fact that I can text him a heart emoji and he can know that I'm thinking about him and I appreciate him and I'm using soft skills to show him gratitude, yeah, I just don't agree. I don't agree that, that like. But is that heart emoji gonna replace a hug for your, for your child? No, but I'm not there. 
I get that, but, no, no, it's all, no, but no, also like, no, no, like for us. No, 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 let's, let's stick on that for a minute. <laughs> Is it gonna replace it? Of course not. Right. But what about when you're not there? Like what about when you're not thinking about it? Like, like again, why, why do we put some people, you're talking semantics. And when people talk semantics, they try to put things like a written letter on a pedestal. No, but I'm also talking that I really couldn't care less if my kids know calculus. I, I'm Smart. sorry. But Next. I do care, and we have, like, since the day they could walk and talk, that they shake someone's hand and look them in the eye. Right. And we have said that 4,000 times. And I have 4,000 times the last six months made fun of people that put that on a pedestal. Not because I don't agree. I agree too much. You and I are kindred spirits. That's probably why you've been consuming so much of my content. I can tell already. <laughs> I mean right. this. It's that I don't want, what you're talking about is respect, kindness, and empathy for another human being. Yes. You've decided that a handshake and looking in the eye is the manifestation of that. I don't believe that to be true or needed in a world where things evolve. Hmm. I think the spirit of it is more important than ever and always, actually not more, is always the most important. But I'm not gonna require my children to manifest it in what the current state of a politically correct version of it is. I expect them to act on it. What I love about life is I have no interest in trying to change your mind. I love that every family and every parent and every little group of individuals gets to decide what those little trinkets are of it. But I have no passion for my children to be entrepreneurs. I have a passion for my children to be happy the way I am because I'm an entrepreneur and I was meant to be one for them and if that's an artist or a parent or a student or a, you know, a professor, I'm, and, and I think that's how I think about the handshake thing. I don't need them to be a handshake in the eye kid, I need them to manifest kindness, respect, caring and things of that nature and I think those rules evolve. Those rules evolve. Your great great grandmother thinks it's insane that you're wearing pants right now. That's she, was not, pr- she was pretty cool. But that's not what a lady does in her rules of right. you being a lady. I think you're a lady. So I mean that. The Beatles' hair was unacceptable. It just was. And so I'm not willing to like take historic or current social norms that are the indicator of respect. I actually want my kids to respect people. On that note. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks guys for listening. Please, please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed because a bunch of you aren't subscribed and more importantly, a bunch of you listen every day and haven't told your friends it's the best podcast in the world. I'm watching. (laughs) Have a great day.